when we walk around this earth and we look at another human as just simply being them and not really being a living embodied history, we hold less compassion sometimes. When we look at a person and we say, wow, that person's holding a lot of history, it can produce, I, I hope, a lot more healthier interactions among us. From To Be Magnetic, this is The Expanded Podcast with your host, Lacey Phillips. And your host, Jessica Gill. As the leading destination for neural manifestation, we dispel the woo-woo in order to help you create real, tangible results based on neuroplasticity, psychology, epigenetics, and energetics. Our goal is to normalize the practice of manifestation and empower you to get into the driver's seat of your life in order to manifest the experiences, relationships, and things that most align with your authenticity. And by pressing play, the process begins. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Expanded. Jessica here. I am so excited for today's episode. It is one that I've wanted to have for a long time. We've gotten this request a lot to talk about intergenerational healing, ancestral healing. What does that look like? How do we start to pick that apart and examine what's going on there? And today's episode really dives in to all of that, to our nervous system, to the things that we picked up from generations and generations prior that are still operating within our nervous system, to even the small patterns and cycles that maybe have operated in our family of origin that now we're repeating in real time. And when we come up against our tests and triggers in real life, we often revert back to those patterns, those coping mechanism patterns that we learned early in life. And on today's episode with leading trauma psychologist, Dr. Marielle Bouquet, we are diving into all of those things. Now, if you haven't heard of Dr. Marielle Bouquet yet, I'm sure many of you have. You probably follow her on Instagram. She shares some incredible, incredible tools and advice and insight. But her background is really unique in that she received her doctorate in counseling psychology from Columbia University. And she also trained as a fellow in holistic mental health. So she's really able to blend sort of these two worlds and look at healing as such a holistic view. And that really rings true in her latest book, Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. She took everything that she's learned through her decades with client research and in her studies and in many, many, many of her trainings, including understanding ancient practices, indigenous healing. It's really a full modern comprehensive therapeutic guide to generational healing. And one of the things that stand out in this episode the most to me and hopefully will inspire you as well is she gives a lot of really practical skill sets of things you can use in the moment to help calm your nervous system relatively quickly i'm talking like five to ten minutes quickly now sometimes we might need a little bit more time to go through everything and let our emotions feel all the way through but if you're someone who when you are on the cusp of that trigger and you are really trying to approach how you respond to a trigger in a new way, but you keep reverting to old patterns, try some of the techniques that Dr. Muriel is sharing in this episode and I promise you'd be very surprised at the results you'll find. 
It is a really powerful episode, probably one that you'll come back to many times, and I highly recommend her book. Again, that's Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. It is fantastic. I read it cover to cover. There are so many practical tips in there. And yeah, I'm just really excited for you guys to enjoy today's episode. And one other note I wanted to share with you is we got a lot of questions about the manifestation challenge. Everyone is really in the thick of it, I think, in the new year when they're like, oh my gosh, what? how do I commit to everything and catch up on this? Can I still start? Yes, absolutely. You can start the manifestation challenge at any point. And I know for myself and our household, everyone was getting slammed with sicknesses this holiday season. I you know, ran out of all my normal supplements and I wasn't getting good sleep and I wasn't moving as I usually do. And of course, everyone came down with everything. And it's been a slower start to the year. And I think that that is completely okay and exactly what my body needed to get some deep, deep rest. And I'm going to kick back up into the challenge probably next week. And the challenge will be open until March 1st, which means from this week, you have eight weeks. As of next week, you have seven weeks. And it's only a six-week challenge. So even if you start in a week from now, you still can go at the exact pace of the challenge and won't be rushed at all. So highly recommend joining if you haven't yet. It is so powerful. And I wanted to share a recent testimonial to help expand you. Hi, TBM community. My name is Jamie, and I'm one of your wisers. I turned 60 in November, and I've been practicing TBM for two years, almost two and a half maybe. What I want to say is this. I have practiced it to the letter and done all the manifestation challenges, and I have acquired so many manifestations. I do all the vision boards on Pinterest and do all the prompts and the DIs. And what I have learned about myself in the last two and a half years is that I had very low self-value and low self-esteem. And I put up with a lot of crap that I didn't need to put up with and a lot of unkind people in my life. And so what I've learned and manifested in the last few years from practicing this is I've raised my self-value and my self-esteem. And I've also acquired a lot of material goods. I've acquired various different cars that I've wanted and, and certain handbags that I've wanted And that's all great and everything, and I love that, and I feel so very grateful. But most importantly, I have acquired a value in myself that I think is really probably the greatest thing. The other thing I want to say really quickly, I always wanted to live abroad, and I just leased an apartment in Italy, and I am sitting here in Florence, Italy right now in my apartment having dinner. So I put that on my vision board. It happened, and I am here, and... You know, I don't know what to say. I love, I love TBM. I love hearing the non-material manifestations as well, because I think that internal work really is the core and the heart of everything that we're doing at TBM. Of course, you'll get the material things, but really that sensation, that true inner confidence, that true self-worth is, is really what we're after here. And I also want to remind you guys that we have our speak pipe message board. So if you are manifesting with the challenge, let us know what's coming up for you. Help expand others. If you get the ping to share, click the link in the show notes and please share your 90 second testimonial. We can't wait to hear from you. And now a word from our partners. 
one of the number one questions I have gotten on Instagram in the last few months has been, oh my gosh, your hair has grown so insanely. What are you doing? It looks amazing. A, thank you. B, it's Actinacre. I'm telling you guys, once I understood that your scalp has a microbiome of its own and when you can keep a healthy scalp, your hair can actually flourish and grow and be as healthy and shiny as possible. So Actinacre is a scalp care brand. They're absolutely science-backed, super clean. Their founder, Helen Reavy, is a board-certified trichologist who has really been studying and understanding the scalp at a whole nother level and has been on this mission to transform hair care and really get to the root of what is going on with our hair so it can flourish. And two of the products I've been using the most in the last year, which I think have contributed to my healthy hair, has been their cold press scalp detox. You've probably heard me talk about it before. It is a little scalp treatment that I'll put on. Usually if I'm you know, prepping for a workout, I might put it on and just leave it on 20 minutes. Or if I'm going to get in the shower in a bit, I'll put it on about 20 minutes before that. And it helps break down all of the buildup and impurities that is on your scalp. It is getting rid of anything that doesn't need to be there, old bacteria, things that are standing in the way of natural hair growth. And it is delivering vitamins into each of your hair follicles to help make them flourish. So that is a huge one. And then the second one I've been using is their BHA salicylic acid scalp exfoliator. I use this once a week. I am someone that has always had an oily scalp, no matter how much and how often I wash my hair or how little I didn't wash my hair. It's like a day goes by and then it was greasy or even at the end of the day I showered, it was greasy, but not until this exfoliator treatment. So I'll use it, like I said, once a week, I'll put it on, leave it on for 20 minutes and then hop in the shower right after. Really, I'll rub it in deeply and this helps get anything that maybe needs a little bit more care, a little bit more to help rebalance your your oil glands there and get anything that any loose flakes or any extra sebum or oil or anything that might be going on there, it's really going to support you in that regard. They have so many different products, any kind of hair type you have out there, they have something for you. I highly recommend checking them out. They are one of my favorites. And anyone that asks me, what is the hair system you're using? This is it. And we have a code for you all to get 15% off your orders. If you use the code TBM15 at checkout, again, that code is TBM15 at checkout. You can check the link in the show notes or go to actandacre.com to learn more about the company and the products that they offer. And I am so excited to hear about your hair care journey. Let me know how everything works for you. All right, on to the episode. so excited and honored. It was so funny. I was looking back on our dream guest list over the past few years, and you have been on it since, I don't know, 2018, 2019, like (sighs) a long time. We're like, we have to figure out a time we can have her on. I've been following your Instagram forever, and we're so grateful to have you on today. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear that my work is resonating in that way. Thank you so much for having me and for your support also. Yeah. So Okay, you might not know this, but we always start off with a little astrology. (laughs) So in case you know, what is your sun, moon, and rising? 
I actually know this because my cousin, Lisette, who's actually visiting me right now, she has actually helped me to learn that I am rising on Virgo on all. Wow. Triple Virgo. Oh Uh my gosh. No wonder your book is so well organized and sequenced. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. I I do have an an alternate side of myself with that that isn't as orderly. So I'm glad that there's (laughs) a part that really reflects that. Oh, amazing. Okay. And another question we ask all of our guests, what is your cultural background and upbringing? I'm an Afro-Dominican woman, uh, and I also immigrated from the Dominican Republic when I was five, and I migrated to my hometown, which is Newark, New Jersey. So that's a little bit of the, the background for sure. I'm from Jersey as well. When I saw Newark in the book, I was like, oh my gosh, very familiar. My dad worked in Newark, so we would go up there all the time. How do you think growing up in the Dominican Republic and then coming and living in in Newark and then moving on into the career path that you're in now, how do you think some of those earlier memories, stories, intergenerational moments informed the work that you're doing today? You know, I think it definitely gave me a lens that I'm super grateful for because that lens actually allows me to have an enormous amount of understanding and humility around the work that I do. But it also helped me to understand one aspect of the human experience that is very, very prominent in the U.S. in particular, especially when it comes to immigrant populations, immigrant identities, which is the experience of having kind of like this dual consciousness of having this understanding that worlds can be so different, that ideologies can be different, that there's this way of being, way of living that varies depending on the cultural context. And that has helped me so much in being able to be very intentional about cultural nuances within the work that I do. When did you begin your healing journey? and start diving into all of the tools and modalities that have become the book that you've recently written? That journey started 15 years ago. I laugh because I'm like, my goodness, I can't believe it's been that amount of time. It actually doesn't feel that like it's been that long. But for 15 years, I've been actually very intentional about my healing. And for a good portion of those years, I've also been intentional about pouring that healing back into my family. So it's been a journey that was very individual for a number of years and then eventually transitioned into being more intergenerational. So let's talk about this. This has been a a requested topic from our audience for so long is generational trauma, intergenerational trauma. What is it? What does it mean? What are those cycles that are playing out within us? Just to give an overview of like, when we say that, what do we mean? Intergenerational trauma is incredibly unique as far as an emotional experience is concerned. And the reason being is because it's the only type of trauma that can be handed down from grandparent to parent, parent to child, generation to generation. And it happens at the intersection of our biology, meaning our genetic expressions and also our cellular memory, the ways that our nervous systems are structured and continue to operate throughout life. 
in our psychology, which is basically anything that falls in the spectrum of the social experiences that we might have within our lives that then connect to the emotions that we maintain and keep. And those can be, you know, as early as the very outset of life, us having potential misattunement with caregivers who may have themselves been in states of trauma. And then fast forward into perhaps our childhood, if we experience some sort of bullying or discrimination, if we went into our first set of relationships and those relationships were marked by toxicity and cycles of abuse and we go out into the world and the world is, you know, as unfair as the world might be. And there may be, you know, a pandemic that we suffer or, you know, more localized collective tragedies like a tsunami or wildfires. And then all of these things make it so that whatever emotional vulnerabilities and predispositions may have been there from a genetic place actually get triggered into being trauma responses. And if we are saying that we have, in essence, like a parent or two grandparents, ancestors, that they themselves were in states of trauma, transition those genetic markers over to their children, which made those vulnerabilities plausible, and then those vulnerabilities got triggered into trauma responses into the next generation, the trauma itself would be intergenerational. I mean, I think it's so powerful. We know that like our grandmother had our DNA in her ovaries, right? So thinking about even that short of a, a generational cycle, they literally, whatever emotional state they were going through, what they were carrying is imprinted on us. And then that going forward and thinking even now we're carrying our grandchildren's DNA within us. And so what are the emotional states and genetic mutations that are happening to our cells that are going to code into them as well. I think that is so fascinating. But then thinking that that can go back so much further. There was one reference in the book of like, you have, what was it, 255 different ancestors living within your body and physiological response. Talk about that a bit. I mean, that's fascinating. I'm like, how could, no wonder everyone's <laughs> overwhelmed and their tolerance window is low and they're not sure how to cope with things. I can really appreciate your reflection because in part, that kind of reflection was what I was aiming for with helping us to understand all of the direct histories that exist within us. Because when we walk around this earth and we look at another human as just simply being them and not really being a living embodied history of seven generations of their family members, we hold less compassion sometimes. Like we, when we look at a person and we say, wow, that person's holding a lot, they're holding a lot of history. They're holding a lot of pain. They're holding a lot of emotion. It allows us to humanize each other a lot more in a way that can produce, I, I hope, a lot more healthier interactions among us humans that are lacking some of that in today's day and age. So with that being said, prior to Western medic medicine really taking hold and being kind of the forerunner in the area of generational healing or generational trauma understandings, we had a lot of other modes of, we'll call them like wisdom, that were already helping us to understand that multiple generations of pain could exist within us. For example, there has been a lot of ancestral wisdom that's been passed down through Native people's understanding of soul wounds and the wounds that exist within multiple members of a family and of a community that actually span seven generations back. 
And I think there were some scientists that got really curious about that. And they said, well, let's test that out. Let's, let's look at things under a microscope and see what this really means in a very more westernized scientific and perhaps even tangible way. And right now, as the book is coming out, there's still some studies that are uncovering the potential of there being even more generations of histories that exist within us, up to 14. But it is just so novel and so new that I didn't want to include it in the, in the actual book because seven is already fairly overwhelming. But when we're talking about seven generations, we're talking about 128 fifth great grandparents. And like I mentioned in the actual book, you know, they bore 64 of their children, who bore 32 of their children, who bore 16 of their children, who bore eight of their children, who bore your four grandparents, who bore your two parents, who bore you. And taken together, all of those histories amount to 255 histories, including your own, that exist within you. So when we're talking about seven generations, we're talking about the seven generations that ancient wisdom has already helped us to understand and uncover are embedded within our cellular and genetic memory, and also what now other modes of inquiry or scientific methods are also helping us to understand truly exist within us. Well, there's a couple of things I find so fascinating. One, I mean, I only have the history of maybe a few of those generations back through word of mouth because there was no way to have that laid out somewhere, right? And I think as we're in such a digital age now, how cool to be able to record like you have in the book, the trauma tree of like putting all of your history in there of what happened and what you may have gone through. So future generations now have an idea of what they're kind of stepping into. That's like a hope that they would have those tools or resources to look to in the future. But I also think it's really interesting, you know, our community is a lot of internal work and like what blocks and limiting beliefs are back there. And to think that, yes, you can have limiting beliefs from your physical experience here, but you can also have a limiting belief based off of what you witnessed your mom go through or what your grandmother went through or what your grandfather went through, you know, like having that stack up and understanding that even if it's not your belief to carry, it may be affecting your nervous system, how you're responding, how you feel when those situations arise around you. And then the other really cool part that I've never heard really anyone talk about is the intergenerational wisdom, the higher self-wisdom. Like if you have 255 generations back traumas, you also have their gifts, the beauty, the wisdom, the history, like all of the goodness as well. Talk about that a little bit. The beautiful thing about intergenerational wisdom and resilience is that it also can be mapped back, not just from a psychological place and like socially what you heard your elders say that would have been wisdom that would have been imparted onto you, the strength that they held through the adversities that they had to overcome that are reflective of the strength that is inherent in you, but that we also have some of the biology that's really helping us to uncover the ways in which generationally we also have ways in which we impart wisdom. One example of that is, as I'd like to see it as wisdom, is the fact that Yet again, you know, those multi-generational cellular cues exist within all of us, right, that also span many generations back. 
how I like to think about that is if an ancestor understood that a certain smell, let's say that there was a sweet smell and it almost emulated a rose, that that smell would have indicated that there's a possibility that a predator might be present or that there's someone that is an unhealthy connection might be present. There is a a chance that their cellular memory would have integrated that into their being. So every time that they smell that same smell, they actually, you know, it's in part what we call triggers, right? They would have gotten triggered to understand there's a threat coming, I must prepare. What we understand scientifically right now is that that information also gets translated forward. And in part, I like to look at that also as ancestors imparting their wisdom of, you know, whenever you smell something sweet, like a rose, just be alert, be mindful, because there's a possibility of danger being lurking around, and it's important for you to aim to protect yourself. So there's some biological, some people call it like epigenetic preparedness, they call it, you know, biological evolutionary preparedness, and all other kinds of things that are, you know, just language that we're starting to really create around this. But I think it all really falls under the bucket of what was the biological resilience, strength, and wisdom that also got translated forward beyond, you know, the, the actual interpersonal interchanges that we've had with community members and elders that are also a part of how we build that wisdom. I think about the example you gave of the lemongrass tea and having that soothing moment where you really were like, okay, yeah, this is the tea my grandma gives me. It's great. Amazing. And then understanding, wow, it's actually really soothing to smell. And oh my gosh, there's all these anti-inflammatory properties in it. And that wisdom was there the whole time, but maybe we didn't clock it at that moment, but our bodies clocked it, our nervous systems clocked it. And it's like, what are those little things that you have in your, in your body and your nervous system that you can tap into? Yeah, there's so many. And the thing is that I believe that with this book, I will be able to hear more stories about those because a lot of the stories that I have are the stories that I've heard within my own therapy room, the stories that I've heard within my own family, and then the stories that I hold within myself of how wisdom is imparted of the things that, for example, with the lemongrass tea, the experiences that I've had around feeling so soothed, feeling so centered, and not really knowing why lemongrass had that kind of effect upon me. But finally coming to the understanding through the stories that my mother was starting to tell me about lemongrass tea, and it's the generational gift that it was within our family that I started understanding why this scent produces this effect within me that makes me feel safe and calm and soothed and centered. Lemongrass is my thing, but there are so many others that are very specific to every individual that walks this earth. We all have a story or something. Should we have an opportunity to really sit with ourselves, sit with ancestral wisdom and really tap into these, you know, aspects of our generational resilience, like I feel like there's going to be a lot more that's going to burgeon from the people that read this book, that many more stories that we're going to have and examples that we're going to have about generational wisdom that lives in us and lives in our cellular memory. And I can't wait to hear what people have to say. I think it's cool too. I had this ping to do this a few years back and I now after reading your book, I'm like, I really need to do this 
thinking of like going forward, but I would get like little hits of intuition around, and maybe that is that, that cellular wisdom coming forward. But I remember when I was, I was really struggling to keep a strict workout regimen. And I was like, really just kind of shaming myself on it and feeling disappointed and all these things. And I sort of prayed to my ancestors and we're like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm having difficulty committing to this practice. I know I feel good when I move my body. What do I do? And the message that came back was like, go on a long walk. You are designed to go on long walks. You don't need to do a million weights in the gym. Maybe you're having difficulty because that doesn't feel natural to you and just go on long walks and start there. And now walks are like my sanctuary. Like that is where I go to like release everything and, and, And so I don't have the exact history, but I feel like in my bones, maybe they just really walked a lot. Like maybe they were gatherers or, you know, grabbed something out in the the fields or who knows what the story was. But that to me helps regulate my nervous system so much. I love that. You know, I've, I've been coming upon that same experience with gardening. I don't get an opportunity given that I live in a very industrialized area and I don't have a lot of access to green spaces, but in my home, I do have a backyard and I've gotten to pour, you know, a couple little plants and herbs and things within my home. And there's something about connecting to earth in that way that also feels like similar to your experience, you know, like it just teleports me back and it really feels grounding beyond the fact that gardening itself is a grounding practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the thing is that sometimes if we are willing to just kind of go with the flow, allow ourselves to just listen to what our intuition is telling us about a practice, a hobby, a moment, a mindful moment, you know, and just really just stay there. I think there's so much insight that can come from those moments. Talk a little bit about the allostatic load. And, and the cumulative burden of chronic stress going kind of in the other direction. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important for people to know, to identify this almost window of tolerance and how much just stacks up, stacks up. Almost how numb, I almost want to say, people become to how much they're actually carrying. I'll start with the last thing that you said. You know, people become numb to how much they're carrying because they have never been taught to be attuned. We live in a world that's highly, highly disconnected from itself, that its constituents are disconnected from themselves, and we don't have a protocol put in place at key moments of our lives when developmentally we're learning ourselves, like in school, that helps us to understand how to check in, how to have body awareness, how to know when our belly is feeling upset because we're actually worried, how to tune into that pain that we feel on our shoulders and the possibilities that that could be connected to the very rough day that we just had. Like we don't have those mechanisms in place. We don't have pediatricians having that understanding and integrating that into the recommendations that they make for children. We don't have other kinds of uh, medical specialists integrating that into their understanding of adult bodies and adult minds. And so as a result, there's all of this that's floating around and 
this vast, vast world. And we have so many people that are walking around without that understanding and knowledge of the fact that we have a body that wears down because of stress. And the allostatic load is, in essence, the neurological wear and tear meter of the body. And it maintains our capacity for stress. And whenever it's overloaded, it, it actually can dip us into allostatic overload. However, with time, too much of that can actually start turning into physical disease because our organs start overproducing some of the hormones that are not healthy for them. Our bloodstream gets impacted by the allostatic overload. Our brains start pruning away very important brain mass and neurons. Like there's so many ways in which all of the, the stressors that we undergo through life are connected to how much our, our bodies are taking in and how worn down they feel. And eventually, you know, that contributes to physical disease, which is why the stress disease connection is so incredibly important, why it's important to teach in medical school, why it's important to teach to other medical specialties, and why it's important for everyday people to have an understanding around. It's, I would say, probably becoming more increasingly common, but pretty uncommon that you have such a clinically trained background, but then that understanding of that mind-body-spirit connection. When in your work did you start seeing like, okay, there are missing gaps here. Like we need to go out and seek this or find this because you've really collected an incredible work of tools that blends all of that in such a beautiful way. And I think that's pretty rare <laughs> to find. It is. It is rare. I actually felt like the weirdo in a lot of the clinical spaces that I occupied. And I felt like my perspective, it, it wasn't identified as like the kind of perspective that was shared by a lot of my colleagues in the in clinical spaces. And it's not necessarily their fault. It's It's the fact that they're trained. We are all trained that way. I was incredibly fortunate to have been trained under three-year fellowship in holistic mental health. And so it just happened to be that I got that lucky to actually have that clinical training that was incredibly robust, that was very longstanding, and that allowed me an opportunity to play multiple roles that were almost unheard of for a student to ever enter. I was actually still a student in training and going into different medical specialty clinics to actually give not only holistic therapy to the patients that were a part of that medical specialty clinic, but also to, to give training to the clinicians, to the physicians, OBGYNs, cardiology, gastroenterologists, like so many different specialties of medicine that I was actually connected to and, and training individuals that were already fully trained in decades into their work on the implications of stress upon the health of their patients. So it was something that was so unique and so, I, I feel like the same with psychology. I feel like this field found me. Mm -hmm. I feel like holistic medicine found me, but it was only upon stumbling upon that fellowship that I realized that when I looked back at my home and when I went back home and I started eating back home and I started drinking my mother's juices and teas and I started talking to family members that a lot of this ancient wisdom was also present in my home, but we just never gave it that title. 
you know, we're living our lives, having the understanding that these are the things that we, that we know. Just now I was talking to my cousin and her partner and we were talking about oregano oil and utilizing that and, and the uses that they have for oregano oil. And that's wisdom that they understand and they know is important for their health. But it's in talking to my family members in these ways that I start uncovering and understanding, like we've had this wisdom this wisdom has been there for a very long time. And it is unfortunate that we've had to be disconnected from it and that it had to be pathologized by Western medicine and that now Western medicine is in such dire need of the ancient wisdom that it discarded for so many, so many years, so many centuries. There's magnesium and then there's mellow. I love this little saying because I think so many times right now we're seeing magnesium in the evening. We need this for restful sleep. It's an incredible nutrient. You know, so many people are deficient. I think the statistic is 75% of people are deficient in this essential vitamin that impacts 300 different compounds in the body. And one of the reasons I am obsessed with Ned's Mellow Magnesium Super Blend is that not only is it some of the highest quality ingredients for magnesium, they have three forms of chelated magnesium, which means they are covering you from all angles on the magnesium. It's high bioavailability, clean ingredients, gluten-free, sugar-free, non-GMO, naturally derived. Not only all of that, but they also have L-theanine and GABA in there. And I say this because L-theanine is a supplement that is fantastic to use before bed to help induce relaxation, calmness in the body, and GABA helps support our brain health. So when we take GABA before bed or anytime during the day, it is helping us create new neural pathways. And you know at TBM, we're always about creating new neural pathways of high self-worth, moving past those limiting beliefs. So just by taking the magnesium drink in the evening, you are supporting your neural pathways while you sleep. So what I like to do is take a little scoop of their magnesium powder. I'll drop it into, I put it in like a little cocktail glass and then swift it around. I'll put like a fancy ice cube in and make it the first part of my nightly ritual. And then maybe I'll go journal or I'll lay down and put on my red lights in the room. But this is kind of like the kickoff to my evening. It tastes fantastic. They have two new flavors, which I've been obsessed with recently. They're pomegranate and they're Meyer lemon. The Meyer lemon, let me know if you guys try it out, but the Meyer lemon to me tastes like a lemon pound cake, but not that sweet. I could be crazy, but that is my taste. It's just bringing back nostalgia of being a kid and having that at my grandma's. And it is absolutely delicious. And I keep both flavors on hand so I can switch off between the two. I also am obsessed with their lavender berry. That has been my original favorite that I've loved since day one of Ned, but their new flavors are also fantastic. So if you're interested in upping your sleep game, your nightly ritual, you're looking for something to help calm your nervous system before sleep, or also just help your neural pathways as you sleep, I highly, highly recommend Mellow Magnesium Super Blend. And we have a discount for you guys. You can get 15% off your order with TBM15. Again, that code is TBM15 for 15% off. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more about Ned, the incredible things that the company is doing and how clean and incredible their products are, how high quality 
It is truly fantastic and I highly recommend it. What are some other tools that people can go to when they find that that intensity, that stress, that pressure has mounted so much? What are some tools, techniques that you use that you see the most results from that really help the nervous system rebalance to offload some of the stress that might be built up? The tools that I like to gravitate towards, of course, I, there's more comprehensive tools in the book and I do layer the tools and I make them more ancestrally centered and culturally relevant. But the tools that I gravitate towards the most, both in, in my personal life and my professional life, and that I like to almost kind of like reiterate whenever I'm in conversation with folks is they're tools that are accessible. They're They're easy for all of us to get to. It's not the, you know, the yoga practice that I venerate and I think is critical and important for us to integrate into our lives should we have the you know body capacity to do so. It is simpler than that. It's deep breathing. It's deep breathing in a way that also takes into account how much we need to pour into that practice. It's the deep breathing that isn't just three breaths or one random session with someone that does breathing coaching, you know, on a Tuesday night, and then all of a sudden for the rest of the year, you never take deep breaths. It's not that. It's a lifestyle change. It's deep breaths on a daily basis that are taken for a minimum of five minutes so that the nervous system can actually register that you are helping it to heal, to restore, and to feel calmer. And and so it's the orientation around deep breathing that is really, really critical for us to have in order to actually do the practices that are going to have an impact, especially when we're talking about old bodies that are ancient, ancestral, and have 255 histories living within them, we're going to need the understanding of how we really do the undoing of stress. And so deep breathing is one. Another one that also helps us, you know, within the nervous system in fairly similar ways, perhaps a little bit less effective than breathing, but still effective enough, is rocking. Rocking is a ventral vagal stimulation practice that offers us an opportunity to to also stimulate that cranial nerve that is primarily responsible for rest and relaxation within our nervous system. The same with humming, similar effect as rocking. And so we have these practices, breathing, humming, rocking, that are fairly accessible to most humans, breathing being the most accessible. That actually helps us to have in our back pocket, tools that we can access when we're catching the bus, when we're in between meetings, when we're waking up, when we're going to sleep. And we don't have to worry about, did I schedule that yoga practice? Did I schedule that sound bath meditation in the studio for a week from now? We actually get to do this work on a daily basis and do the, the, the reparative work that our body needs at the pace that it needs, which is on a daily basis. So, okay, I'm like forming a picture in my head in an ideal scenario, and I know it's going to be different for each person, but it, it kind of is like a two-pronged piece where it's like someone has to be aware when they're reaching a threshold. They have to clock like, oh, yep, I'm noticing that's coming up, that emotional awareness that we want to bring. And then it's having the habit to 
do the deep breathing, to do the rocking, to do the humming in that moment? Well, the thing about these practices and the reason why I emphasize that they need to be a lifestyle change is because it's almost unfair to ask a person, when you're most triggered, put this in place. In part, because it's just not fair, <laughs> but, <laughs> but truly, because biologically, it's going to be harder for them. Biologically, their, their actual body and their nervous system are invested in protecting them at that moment. So they're not going to have some of the mental faculties that they're going to need to actually engage in the complex thinking that is required for them to actually identify that they need to breathe, rock, and hum. So if that's the case, one of the things that I learned in, in my one of my trainings that was more cognitive behavioral in nature was this concept of building mastery. And building mastery is done through engaging in the practice that we hope to build mastery around when we're least triggered and engaging in it on a continuous basis. That means that we do deep breathing when we don't need it, when we're actually calm, when we've just woken up, or when we have a, a calm moment in our day and we engage in the practice and we engage in the humming and we engage in the rocking in the moments when we don't have any kind of trigger stimulus around us. We do it when we're simply training our bodies to default to that. When we need it, then we would have easier access to the tool because it's just become so prominent in our thinking. Oh, that is fascinating. If you think about habits too, if you only did one habit as sort of a, I don't want to say as a punishment, but if you're in a bad state and then you do the habit, like it's not going to stick as much as, oh, I feel good. I'm going to continue feeling good by this breathing exercise or humming or rocking. I think that's so fascinating. And even, you know, it's the top of the new year. I think so many people have so many goals and intentions. It's like, if you can just make it really simple and have your goal and intention to just start doing those little things that you can integrate in your day-to-day, -day, oh my gosh, that would be incredible. It would be. And, you know, I lean on science a lot in part because we are still a world that creates a hierarchy of, you know, science and scientific inquiry being important. But the science also tells us that body memory can be built within three to 400 repetitions, which is almost the equivalent of a year. We have 365 days in a year, and within those 365 days, we create a lifestyle practice of integrating body-based practices that help relieve the stress that, it, that, that our bodies are absorbing in this fast-moving world. Imagine, imagine how different our bodies can be, meaning that our bodies, you know, are of course depositories for a lot of our stress and trauma, Imagine the difference that a year can make in engaging in these kinds of practices. I think it's something worth considering at the very least. And I think if so many people are on, you know, their own healing journey with different modalities, whatever they're doing, and one of the obstacles is that when it starts to get really overwhelming and really scary or things feel heavy, they're like, oh, I, that was too much. And they put it away and they, you know, don't run back to it or they won't look at it for a long time. But if you have a practice that can 
help your nervous system, a tool to go back to, a resourcing of sorts, you know, that you can have as you're diving in and pulling apart and facing, especially even the shame. You have a whole section on shame in the book. Talk a little bit about that and how that how we can move through it because I think it's one of the hardest emotions and and biggest kind of blockers and why people project out their emotions so much too because that shame is so intense. Yeah, shame actually happens to be one of the biggest, most prominent and most powerful and most debilitating emotions associated with trauma. It is why a trauma protocol needs to embed a very comprehensive analysis of the shame that exists within our family lines, the ways that that shame has been translated forward and the ways that we start healing the shame that exists and disrupt that shame cycle. It is the kind of experience that can be very suppressing. In addition, shame can also be suppressing to the point of causing physical ailments. And so through and through, mind, body, and spirit, shame is, shame is like deafening. You know, it creates a deafening of the spirit. Our bodies wear down. Our minds become constricted to shame. And so I, I felt it very important to specifically and holistically focus on shame and the ways in which we need to shed the shame of the past in order to transition into a future that's lighter. Because if you think about shame, at the very least, if people don't experience shame, I don't know who wouldn't, but if somebody is, you know, in a milder form of shame and embarrassment, think about when that embarrassment is lifted. How do you feel? Lighter? The antithesis to, to shame would be pride, right? So you feel proud. You feel like you can show your face and exist as you are. There's so much that that shame takes away from us that I find it to be so critical to go into a space where healing can exist and can create that lightness for us, create that experience of like shedding the shadows and leaving shame behind. And it's a process. It's a process that includes a lot of the practices that I offer, you know, within my practice and book. It means that we continuously work on the ways that shame has threaded into our lives. And it means that we, we say goodbye to shame in a very explicit way. Talk about the still method. I think this is like incredible and so helpful for people who are just going through a lot, pulling back their, their history and their traumas and everything that they've gone through too. Yeah, and still is yet another technique that involves that concept of building mastery still is a technique that I integrated into my work and, and into the book as a way to help us to work with triggers, but work with triggers also in a proactive way. And still is an acronym because we love acronyms in psychology. And it stands for stop, temperature, inhale, lay, launch. And what it means is that whenever we experience something that can be distressing in any way, first we imagine a stop sign. We freeze in place. We don't do anything that can jeopardize relationships, that can jeopardize, you know, any kind of like job or any circumstance that's in front of us. We instead freeze. We go somewhere where we can have access to cold water. Maybe it's a bathroom and splash cold water on our face or just allow cold water to run on our hands. If we have access to a fridge, grab a piece of ice. 
anything that can actually get us into a, a part of our bodies to feel a sense of cold. Now, the ultimate way to do this is to take a cold water plunge or to dip into cold water. That would be perhaps less accessible at all moments of life, but definitely the best thing to do. And the reason why we introduce cold temperature in this way is because it actually helps us to release endorphins that can help to, to increase our capacity to, to be calm in the moment. Beyond that, we have to inhale, meaning take those deep breaths in the ways that I noted, not just three deep breaths, not just one, but five minutes worth. Lay is meaning you just exit the space that you're in. If you have the capacity to do that, go lay down, sit down somewhere else, just distance yourself from the situation until your nervous system has gotten a chance to catch up to itself, until you've taken those deep breaths, until you've actually engaged in you know, some of that cold water stimulation. And then launches the final step, which is a re-engagement back into the situation. So it's coming back into the conversation, coming back into the circumstance, but this time with a nervous system that feels more settled. And if we practice this time and again, time and again, you could just be literally like in your living room, no one's around you, and you can say, you know what, I'm going to practice still right now. I'm going to go, imagine a stop sign, I'm going to get some ice and hold ice in my hands for a minute. I'm going to inhale for five minutes. I'm going to go sit down and like map out a place where I can sit if I ever feel triggered. And then I'm going to enter circumstances differently. And it's something that we can build mastery around. So when the circumstance does present itself, like just recently, a lot of people were in those family dinners, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have an opportunity to more readily come to the skill. I mean, this is so powerful and accessible. It's funny, my therapist told me years ago to, uh, I have like an ice roller. She's like, roll the ice roller like over your forehead. So like whenever my partner and I get in an argument, I'm like, hold on, wait a second. Like, let me grab the ice roller. I need a second before we finish this conversation. And it really does work. I mean, it's the same thing when you jump into like a cold ocean, your whole body is like, whoa, where are we? What's happening? Whatever loop that you're stuck on, it freezes it and it's tracks and gets you back to the present in your body. Indeed. And there's so much it for anybody who out there who's actually taken plunges in that way. You know exactly what we mean. Mm-hmm. I absolutely hate the cold. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> I hate it. I hate cold water. Actually in the Dominican Republic, cold water uh, showers are typical even today. It is dreadful to me. Until I took a cold water plunge inside of a pool that was 61 degrees, and that's not even as cold as it can get, I didn't understand why people did this. I felt like everything in my body just opened up. It felt so otherworldly. And that was because a lot of my hormones were now, they were being activated in this very profound way with this stimulation. And of course, I went from hot water to cold water, so which is also advisable in order to kind of produce that effect. And so because I did that, I got the ultimate effect. And I was like, this is what people are saying about nervous system stimulation and, and the ways in which we can like experience this like wild ride of emotions, like you, you in, and in a good way. You know, I had been talking about cold water stimulation explicitly and exclusively by way of having learned about it 
in my own training, but it was like a skill that we would actually have, especially the kids do, adults too, but it was like with kids, sometimes they would get a bit triggered just internally, like they would experience shame in like our group therapy. And then as a result, whatever internalized experience they were having, they would feel flushed and we would actually go and do cold water stimulation by going to grab these. We had these like plastic ice cubes, the kinds that are reusable and those we would freeze and then we would bring them to, to the teenagers is what we, what, whom I worked with in that setting. We would bring it to them and they would hold the ice cubes. And I learned about that practice and I learned of its utility and I saw how it worked. And I was like, that's fascinating. And then I mapped that to the cold water plunges and the ways in which these are kind of like similar practices, just in different intensities. And all of that started informing how I started developing the skill of still, because all of the ways in which we can then re-engage into an interaction and make it a healthier interaction, I was all about that, right? And so I was like, well, what are the things I've learned work? And what are the things that I have seen with my very eyes work? And so a lot of it really came from, you know, that work. I love that the last step of it too is the launch to re-engage back into it because I think that is where really the real healing of whatever the moment was triggering can happen. So you think about a conflict, you get in a fight with a family member or a partner or whatever it is, and it triggers something within you that you're like, how could they say this or do this? Or how could this, you know, how could they be acting like this? And you get flooded, you calm your nervous system, you come back. Now from that sort of clarity of a grounded nervous system, how can we set up boundaries for each other? How can we express our emotions in a way that we're not projecting or accusing or using any abusive, you know, hopefully not words or behaviors towards the other person? How do we take accountability for that pause? And then we can have a real actual healing moment. Yeah. The, the purpose is to always come back to connection. It's to always re-engage. It's to always find a way to address whatever has been left unaddressed when we exited and we started envisioning the stop sign. It's always to come back. And so I couldn't leave that part out. So I'm really glad that the acronym worked. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it was a really critical part of what I desired for the skill because I can't, we can't just drop off, right? Like self-soothe and not come back to relationships. The relationships are there. They're on hold and they're waiting for us to say, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to have the conversation. There's so many people out there settling for unfulfilling relationships or people who are stuck in toxic jobs, living in places and spaces that don't inspire them, and especially people who feel like they'll never be able to afford the things and the life that they truly desire. How do I know that? Because it was me before I discovered that manifestation is actually a totally viable, scientifically proven method of creating the life you want. I'm Lacey, I'm the founder of To Be Magnetic, and if you're not familiar with us, we at TBM offer workshops that teach you how to manifest literally everything from love to money to career to beyond. 
Our courses are the most effective manifestation method on the market, and that's because of a secret that I discovered years ago about manifestation, which is you do not manifest from your thoughts. You manifest from your subconscious beliefs. So after decades of client research and input from leading doctors and therapists, we design courses that help you rewire your subconscious mind to align with what you want to manifest. And the best part of all for any skeptic out there, our work is completely scientifically proven to work. Just ask the tens of thousands of members inside our Pathway membership, which gives you unlimited access to all of our workshops, tools, and offerings that you'll use over the course of a year. This includes workshops on inner child, shadow, boundaries, love, money, the infamous ruts, and the horrible rock bottoms, and so much more. Okay, now back to the episode. Imagine as someone's going through and understanding the traumas that they've picked up from family, both psychologically, biology, all of those things, and then also their own traumas, that there are some boundaries and changes that are going to happen with their family members. How do you see, you know, you talked about some really beautiful healing moments within your own family and other people trying to have those healing moments with their family. One question we get a lot is like, oh, my parent just won't change. They're not willing to change. They're not willing to look at it or take accountability or have those healing moments. What would be your advice for anyone who's kind of navigating that dynamic? Well, I always say, you know, when changing others is not available to you, the goal should be changing yourself, allowing yourself to experience the freedom that unfortunately they're not allowing themselves to experience. The liberation from their pain is not something that they're willing to step into, but you can do that. And you can do that almost for yourself and to pay homage to them if you wish to do that. The reality is that many of us are missing really an understanding of how coping mechanisms work. Every generation has a way in which that generation adopted collective coping mechanisms. And then we also have individual people that individually adopted their own coping mechanisms that are more personalized. And many of us forget that Generations past have had coping mechanisms around avoidance. Don't talk about that. Don't, we don't say anything about it. That's been a collective understanding among a lot of older generations. And it is so deeply ingrained for so many decades. And some of us are sitting here in our living rooms with parents and we're pointing the fingers at them and asking them to change generations of behavioral patterns, but we're not equipping them with the alternatives. What is it that they're going to do with the void that's left there and the the coping that still needs to happen? They're going to need tools. They're going to need this book. They're going to need a podcast. They're going to, you know, like they need tools. It's not just about saying you need to change and you hurt me. It's about equipping the older generations with what they're going to need in order to start making, creating their own bridges towards healing. And I think it's, it's in part the approach that we're taking, but I think it's also the fact that there are coping mechanisms that are both individual and collective that are deeply ingrained. And we, in part, are going to have to honor some of those and really just allow older generations to, to live in their own coping strategies. 
but whatever little we can do around it, I, I think can be done not by pointing the finger, but by offering resources. One thing that I've noticed like going through it is also recognizing what their default coping pattern happens to be and and maybe why they adopted that pattern. Because that helps me have compassion for the parent, the family member, whoever it is, and then also compassion for myself or when I see it pop up in me. You know, you talked about that a lot of like, okay, when I tend to be elevated and I'm in fight mode, I yell to make my voice louder, you know, or whatever those patterns are. What are some of those things that maybe we could highlight to just give people some examples? These are some coping mechanisms that may pop up when people are under dress? Yeah, they, they are very variable, but the yelling is definitely one. Like some people slam the door and leave. And if I were to contextualize that within a clinical framework, I would say that to me sounds like fleeing. It sounds like avoidance. Some people talk about something else and leave the conversation mentally, engage in mental dissociation. And that too is a form of fleeing. Some people do damage to themselves. They gamble away their money. They engage in, in substances that can be harmful to their bodies. That's a way of numbing. And that's also a way in which people engage in coping and getting through the moment. It is so variable. It looks so different. And there can be all of the ones that I mentioned in one home. There can be two parents in a home. Each parent has their own version. There could be two children in the home that are now, let's say, emerging adults, and the two of them will have their own version. And they are all coexisting with one another, potentially triggering one another, and everybody goes into a collective nervous system overdrive and into their own respective coping strategies that are many times very predictable. For parents out there, people thinking about having families in the future, what are some ways that we can support the kids and future generations and future kids. I know you had a great podcast with your sister on this too and how she's showing up with her her kids. But how can we how can we not impart? I mean, I know some of it is like we can only do so much in one generation, but how can we impart teaching them the lessons that and the tools to build that resilience and take the wisdom away from these situations? Well, I don't just want to put it on the families. I also want to call out educational systems and community systems. We are all responsible in helping to teach children the language of their emotions. Socio-emotional learning is, it took off a couple years back, maybe like a decade ago. And now it's, I, I've seen a couple school districts almost kind of be in, in a place where they're kind of cutting programming or curriculum around social emotional intelligence. And it is so critical to the development of a child that has not been there for the extent of the American educational system. And now it's not seen as a critical part of their development. A child is less likely to use algebra than to use emotion-based skills. So we have to look at the educational systems that are failing children from an emotional standpoint. And we have to start embedding practices within their educational environment that can actually facilitate better emotional attunement. 
And the same in, at home, you know, like allowing kids to emotionally express themselves, giving them an opportunity to feel validated and affirmed and heard. All of those things are going to be really critical, but it starts with the adults that can finally connect with their own emotions so that they can understand the language of emotions that they can then teach their children. Yeah, that that also makes me think of a really important chapter that you have in the book around the collective intergenerational traumas and intergenerational healing and the responsibility and the awareness and just so many layers within that. Talk a bit about that and how people can really, I think part of it is like having a validation for, yes, you went through all of this. And on top of that, there is this other big entity that is really going to impact you. There's no way it couldn't. And then what is almost like the hope forward for that as well? You know, collective uh, trauma is almost like, I almost feel like it shouldn't even have had its own chapter. Like it should have just been integrated through and through in the entire book. But I wanted to highlight it. I really wanted for us to say, we're just going to focus on collective trauma right now. But the thing about collective trauma is that it really is embedded in everything. There are institutional practices, policies, laws that continue to assail the bodies of really mostly women, mostly people with uteruses, is a way in which trauma continues to perpetuate into our homes and creates adverse health consequences for any individual that is in a predicament in which, you know, their bodies are monitored and and under the control of the state. There's so many iterations of the ways in which collective trauma permeates our homes and our lives on a daily basis. I could be here for hours. And that's why collective trauma, that chapter broke me. It literally was like the hardest one. I threw it out. I rewrote it. I cried during it. I felt the immense pressure of trying to add everything, every lived experience that I've heard of, that I've been connected to, that I treasure, that I want to feel seen. You know, it it was just so hard to do that in just one chapter without writing an entire book about it and without over overdoing it. Like I couldn't have 50 pages on just one chapter, but it it, for my heart desired it, right? What I hope that this tiny piece of knowledge that I've been able to impart in that specific area of the book, I hope that what it can do is that it can get us to start thinking, that it can help us to start thinking even beyond the scope of my own understanding of the ways that collective traumas permeate through our society, and that people start asking the right questions about how the systems that we're involved in and some of us invested in, how the ways that we're treating earth and how the ways that we, you know, continue to inculcate specific cultural values that go on unaddressed and un- uncontested, how all of that is a part of how collective trauma continues to pour into our homes and that we start asking the questions that can help to start disrupt the status quo from, from our respective perspectives and lived experiences. I think it's so important too to highlight because I think when you're thinking of healing work, especially your ancestors and everything back and all the trauma that you have going on, as you're in that healing, it's like what impacts one impacts all. Mm -hmm. You can't just heal in a silo. 
that could be one part of it. But then, like you said, it's going back out into the world. It's seeing, okay, where are the problems here? Like, how, how can we fix this? How can we ask questions here? How can we show up differently here? Maybe it's as small as just interacting with your neighbor differently. And then it expands from there. It's like understanding where are those, those small moments that you can have growth and healing up into those big things. And I love how you had a moment of like, it can feel like you're insignificant into changing this mega thing that has impacted us. And yet your existence and you, your healing and your willingness to get curious and step forward and continue to take action does actually make the shift. It's like the tiny drops in the bucket make the change. And that is how we don't become overwhelmed and overburdened by the issues of the world. We each pick at a specific area that we'd like to focus our efforts and create change there. And I think that that's much more sustainable than giving the responsibility to one person. I love that. So where can people find you, find the book? We kind of talked about it before, but what is your hope with this book? How do you feel people utilize it and integrate it into their lives? I hope that people create healing circles around it. I hope people connect to the people in their lives, their cousins, their siblings, their friends, maybe even coworkers, and and start developing healing-centered conversations and that they themselves feel less lonely in the journey towards cycle breaking, that they feel supported, that they feel like the journey is possible and that they feel held within the pages of the book and within the words that I offer, that it doesn't feel like this overburdening, heavy task that is unattainable, but that it feels like something that they can do within this generation. And they can find me at drmariellebouquet.com. There you'll see like wherever I'm connected and all the things I'm up to, but also my book is also listed on there and it's actually for sale everywhere books are sold. Thank you so much, Dr. Mariel. And thank you for writing this book and putting this out into the world and sharing your wisdom with all of us because it really is changing lives. So thank you so much. Thank you for saying so. And thank you for having me. Hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as we did. And if you're starting to get a feel for this to be magnetic manifestation process, but aren't completely sold yet, let me point you to some of our free offerings. You can check out the expanded podcast episode called how to manifest anything you desire where Lacey, the founder and I break down exactly what this process is all about. You can check out The Motivation, which is our testimonial library with thousands of testimonials of people who have manifested wild things using this process. Or you could check out our free quiz to find out what manifestation phase you were in, the rut, the rock bottom, the next level, or the magic dark, and how you can navigate. Enjoy. We'll see you next week.